Hello, everyone, and welcome to the TMA Ask the Expert podcast series. Today's podcast is entitled Research 101, Finding, Reading, and Understanding Research. My name is Gigi DeFibri, and I will be co-hosting this podcast. Um, the TMA is a nonprofit focused on support, education, and research of rare neuroimmune disorders. You can learn more about us on our website at myelitis.org. Uh, this podcast is being recorded and will be made available on the TMA website for download via iTunes. During the call, if you have any additional questions, you can send a message through the chat option available with GoToWebinar. We want to thank the sponsor of this month's podcast, Alexion. Alexion is a global biopharmaceutical company focused on serving patients with severe and rare disorders through the innovation, development, and commercialization of life-transforming therapeutic products. Their goal to deliver medical breakthroughs where none currently exist is driven by the knowledge that people's lives depend on their work. Uh, for today's podcast, I am pleased to be joined by Trisha Plum and Sam Hughes, um, and we will be just introducing ourselves in just a minute. Um, so we are sharing slides uh, for this, this podcast, so um, if you're on the computer, you should be able to see them. Um, and the goals of today's podcast are, one, to learn how research works, um, how to find and interpret research, and then how to participate in research. Um, so next slide. And to introduce ourselves, um, my name is Gigi, um, and I received a bachelor's degree from New College of Florida and a master's in public health from the CUNY School Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy. I'm also currently a student in a doctor of public health degree program at the same school. Um, I was diagnosed with transverse myelitis in 2009 and am still a, a C6 quadriplegic. And um, as some of you may know, I work as the TMA's Associate Director of Research and Education. Um, and I'm going to turn it over to Sam. Uh, thanks, Gigi. I'm very happy to, to be here and be a part of this podcast. Um, so you all out there listening might recognize my voice and my name. I've moderated some of these podcasts before. Uh, I'm Sam Hughes. I uh, earned my bachelor's in psychology and neuroscience from Texas A&M University and uh, my MBA in healthcare organization leadership um, from the University of Texas at Dallas relatively recently, actually. And I'm uh, currently a research manager at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Children's. I, uh, for the last seven years, worked with Dr. Ben Greenberg and the neuroimmunology group um, uh, managing research in the rare neuroimmune disorders and working closely with the TMA. Recently, I have uh, pivoted and am currently the manager of the new gene therapy program uh, at UT Southwestern Children's and focusing a lot on rare genetic disorders. Great. Hi, everyone. My name is Trisha Plum, and I just want to take a moment to thank Gigi and Sam, and thank you to the TMA for helping, for letting me be a part of this. I think it's really an amazing opportunity. Um, I, I help Dr. Ben Greenberg with his rare neuroimmune disorders research here at University of Texas Southwestern in conjunction with Children's Health of Dallas. And we, <clears throat> I received my bachelor's degree and my master's degree in nursing from the University of Oklahoma. And I also help coordinate the educational aspect of research and rare neuroimmunology for our nursing staff, for our residents, and for patients and our families. Great, thank you both. Um, so we're gonna, you know, jump into the the actual podcast. So I'm gonna turn it over to Sam for now. Thanks, Eugene. So um, 
I think just to get everything started out, to set the tone for the, the kind of talk we're going to give today, kind of dividing it into, a, into about three sections, uh, like Gigi said at the beginning. And this first part that I'm going to discuss a little bit are the different types of research and how the research works. Um, and I'm going to refer to what, uh, what I'll call the continuum of research, starting from preclinical studies, meaning before anything happens in a clinical setting with actual people, all the way through uh, drug trials and into um, what, what are called post-marketing trials after a drug's approved. So uh, first, when we talk about preclinical research, there are two main kinds of research that fall into that category. One is animal research with things like mice and rats and uh, many other kinds of animals. And the main purpose of that kind of research is to create different models of disease processes. For example, in multiple sclerosis, they have uh, what they call an EAE model of MS, um, and that's a mouse model. And so you can use those different kinds of models uh, to test uh, potential new drugs or other interventions on a uh, proxy of the model of the disease. It's imperfect, but it's, it's something that can be done before uh, you test something in people. Uh, another kind is what I'll refer to as biospecimen research, uh, which kind of goes hand in hand in some ways with the animal research. And this is where um, many, many of you listening might have already been involved in. It's an easy way to be involved in research, so to speak, um, where you can give samples like blood, even spinal fluid, saliva, um, um, any kind of, of uh, 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 specimen, and that can be used in the laboratory to um, to test different kinds of drugs uh, with the cells of a person with whatever disease process they're looking into. So it's really testing things outside of the body, uh, what's called ex vivo, meaning outside of the body. Um, so those are kind of the two broad, broad ways um, that research works in the preclinical setting. And as you move forward into a clinical setting, uh, you have, again, two overarching types. Uh, of research, observational and experimental. Observational research, when I say that, uh, really refers to a couple different types. There's descriptive research that can consist of case reports or case series. For example, um, if there's uh, often, if there's uh, a patient that comes and is, uh, for example, a rare disease patient or a very different kind of case than, than what uh, you would expect to see for whether it be an outcome or a feature or anything like that that can be written up as a case report. Or if you see a handful of patients that look similar, you call that a case series. So this is strictly descriptive. It's not saying that there's any cause or effect relationship. Um, uh, there's no what's called inf uh, inference that's made uh, between um, a cause and an effect. It's strictly a description of a disease process or an outcome uh, in, in a patient or uh, some patients. Um, then you can move more into an analytic type of observational research, which um, uh, there are different types of studies that fall into that. Cross-sectional studies, cohort studies, case control studies. These are more what you think of um, uh, like prospective studies that we uh, might call natural history studies, um, or even just looking at one uh, portion of a disease population uh, versus another one, or even from a healthy population where you're looking forward and you're trying to find out, um, uh, get more analysis involved 
with this kind of research where you say maybe this um, there's more of a cause and effect or that there's some correlation between outcomes and maybe some kind of demographic information or that kind of thing. Um, and all of this kind of the big thing that you have to think about when you're looking at observational work is, is it retrospective or prospective? Retrospective uh, really means looking backwards. So looking at historical medical records from either one patient or multiple patients uh, and seeing if you can glean any, any substantial information out of that versus prospective, looking forward, where you're in a standardized, rigorous way, collecting data, um, moving forward at specific time points. Prospective work is considered more reliable and rigorous, like I said, because um, it's done in a standardized way, but it does take more uh, time and resources um, and money uh, to put together. With retrospective work, it is not as resource or time intensive, uh, but it can be rife with, with issues because it's non-standardized information and that kind of thing. And then you have what we call experimental uh, research that involves people. And this is more what you think about um, in terms of drug trials and interventional trials. And you'll hear terms like randomized control trials, uh, where that um, is kind of what we call the gold standard of research where you see um, a group of people that are randomized into categories uh, uh, trying to get rid of all bias and then controlled for different variables whether it be um, one one uh, group has drug and one group does not and you compare the outcomes uh, those are those are generally speaking randomized control trials and in this context where we're talking about drug trials uh, they really test the safety and efficacy or effectiveness of the drug in question. And there are multiple phases that have different endpoints involved, which I'll jump into next. So uh, there are four phases of drug trials, and I'll go through them pretty quickly. Phase one is the first uh, in human trials. So it's the first time a drug is tested in humans. That means that it's gone through the preclinical work, through the animal work, gone and uh, to the FDA and they say, okay, everything looks uh, good enough that we can try this in people. And the main number one concern, the outcome that you're looking for with drug trials, with phase one drug trials are safety and what is the maximum drug dose. So they're not concerned really by and large at all with does the drug work the way that we think it could work. It's really just, is this safe and non-toxic? And these are generally a small number of participants, and it kind of depends on the disease process and the type of drug, what that involves, um, but it tends to be a very small number of patients. If all that looks good, you can move into a phase two trial, which is the first trial to really evaluate the clinical efficacy of that experimental drug. And these are considered um, what we call proof of concept studies, where you show, hopefully, that this drug does what we think it does and is still safe. Um, these have more participants involved that can be into um, the hundreds, but again, that can depend on the patient population. It's a little different with rare diseases. And then moving forward, looking at phase three trials, these are the kinds of trials that uh, you really think about with the large major um, drug trials. So you've gone through, it seems to be safe. There seems to be some uh, form of efficacy uh, that the drug gives. Um, so the phase threes are supposed to be larger studies that have focused on truly establishing the efficacy of the drug. 
And it's the last phase before all of the data from the preclinical work up through these three phases of the trials uh, to be submitted to the FDA for approval to be commercialized and marketed. Um, and like I said, this requires large number of participants, sometimes hundreds to thousands, um, again, depending on the size of the patient population. And uh, uh, then moving that, once you have a drug approved, um, that you can still continue doing work on that. And that's what we call phase four or post-marketing studies, where you're looking at a drug, whether it be um, like in the population that it's approved for and looking at longer um, outcomes uh, and even looking at things like long-term side effects, how different doses might affect uh, different kinds of people, um, how they might, how this drug might interact with other drugs. And then a lot of this pregnant pregnancy outcomes, that kind of thing. So you have post-marketing uh, um, studies as well. And one thing to note that I think is important, especially with um, uh, the TM and NMO populations that we're working with, where there aren't necessarily approved drugs or haven't been approved drugs. Um, if there is an approved drug that you're looking to test in a different patient population than what it was approved for, those are considered phase two trials, where again, you're kind of proving a concept that this drug might work in this different way or in this different patient population. Um, and then uh, moving to the next slide, please. Uh, we wanted to put this, this slide in um, under types of research that hopefully you can see now, or um, if you can look at this after the fact, it will be, it should be posted on the website. Uh, it's what we call an evidence pyramid. And each type of this research that I've talked about has different pros and cons that can influence study results. And if you're looking at the pyramid with me at the bottom, you see like the foundation of the pyramid are the animal and laboratory studies. Without those, you can't move forward. And then moving up, you have the case reports and case series, uh, like I was describing, where they're strictly descriptive um, and, and small. And then you move forward to the case control studies and the cohort studies that are more observational and looking prospectively. Um, and uh, the randomized control trials are above that. And all of these are considered primary studies, which means that you are create, you're creating data from the study. Um, and then uh, uh, above that, you have what we call secondary uh, studies, um, meaning that uh, there's data that's already been analyzed that's out there in the literature from these primary studies, the cohort studies, the randomized control trials. Um, and there are people out there doing what are called meta-analyses, which means that they're looking at a lot of different studies from different patient, uh, from, from different populations within um, maybe one large patient population and looking to do analyses on all of the different studies together. Um, so you're looking uh, a level up um, looking at data that's already been analyzed and putting it all together. That takes a lot of very interesting, very complicated statistics to do. And once you can show that all this works, um, seems to work together, often is, that's when it turns into clinical practice guidelines, where you have, for example, the American Academy of Neurology or other uh, medical colleges uh, saying these are guidelines for how to um, um, give care in whatever patient population. Um, so moving forward, uh, I'll turn it back over to Gigi and she can talk about how um, you kind of find published research out there. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for that overview. Um, 
So, you know, once the research is completed, um, it usually gets presented at conferences or published in academic journals. Um, and so the way, you know, I, I find, you know, new studies um, or new information is um, through a free search engine uh, called PubMed. Um, so PubMed, you know, is accessed using a certain database called Medline. Um, and it usually includes articles that are focused on the life sciences or biomedical topics. Um, and it's a whole range of topics. It includes like animal studies as well, um, but most medical topics are within that. Um, and, you know, the NIH maintains this database. Um, and so what you can do in PubMed is you can search for a keyword like transverse myelitis or MOG antibody associated disease. Um, and it'll pull up a whole list of articles that you know, have that keyword. Um, and what's great about PubMed is you can filter based on you know, how long ago the study was published. So you may be interested in only looking at the past five years, for example. So you can filter based on that. You can filter based on the language. So if you only speak English, you only want you know, English language articles. You can filter based on that. Um, and you can also filter if it's you know, human participants or non-human participants. Um, and pu with PubMed, um, I, I do this as well. You can set up a, an email alert. So, you know, based on a certain search that you do, you know, anytime an article gets added to PubMed that fits that, that search criteria, you'll get an email with a link to, to the article. Um, so it's a really great way to kind of stay up to date with, with new research. Um, in addition to PubMed, there's also a free search engine called Google Scholar. Um, Google Scholar includes literature from, you know, all topics. So it's not just biomedical. Um, but that's another way to you know, search for, for relevant literature for a topic that you're interested in. Um, and so when you're doing these searches, you're, you're going to find that some, are, uh, some articles are behind a paywall. So um, you need to either pay to access the article or you need a subscription to access the article. Um, and subscriptions are usually through you know, academic institutions or academic you know, libraries because they are quite expensive. Um, so if, you know, if you've ever been a student at a university or college, you, know, you usually have access to these um, articles through your school's library, or if, you're, you know, if you work for a university as well. Um, you know, otherwise, it is quite pricey to you know, pay out of pocket as just a person for a subscription. Um, so you can, you, know, you can pay per article for a lot of the, the articles as well. Um, and so when they're not subscription-based, they're called open access articles. Um, and open access just means that it's freely available. You, know, you can search for it and, and read it online. Um, and a lot of funding sources will require that you know, whatever, whoever they're, you know, giving research funding to, um, they require that the researchers, you know, any, any publications that come out of that research um, has to be open access. So for example, the TMA, you know, any research grants we give out, we do require that the articles be open access because we, you know, we believe that people should be able to access the research, um, you know, on with the disorders we advocate for. Um, and so a lot of uh, government agencies as well do that. Uh, so if you're able to access it freely, that's usually open access. Um, and then if you're not able to access the article, so if you find that it is behind that paywall, um, you can usually access the abstract for free. So the PubMed always usually lists the abstracts for, for most articles. 
Um, and the abstract is basically just a short summary of the research. So research um, studies or research papers usually follow a specific outline, um, which I'll go into in a little bit. Um, but the abstract also follows that outline and gives about one or two sentences for each section of the research paper. So it'll tell you kind of a little bit of the background and the, you know, the research questions, their main findings and what their conclusion is. So, you know, if you can't access the article, the abstract is a great way to kind of get the gist of, of what the, the research was looking at. Um, and it's also always good to read that kind of before you read the actual article, uh, just to get a, a broad understanding of what the research was looking at. Um, I also encourage you to look at um, the TMA's resource library. Uh, so on our website, we have a resource library that has, you know, uh, over 100 or 200 resources, um, some of which are published literature su summaries. Um, so in the resource library, you can actually filter by the type of resource you're looking for. So if you want to see these published literature summaries, you can, um, because one, we know that, you know, not everyone has access to these journal articles. Um, and sometimes they can be written in a way that's um, difficult to understand because they're geared towards other scientists. So we always try to write them in a way that, that makes it a little bit easier for everyone to understand because we understand that can be a, a challenge as well. You know, even for me, um, I sometimes have a hard time. Um, and then another thing you can do if you don't have access to this article and you really, really want to read it. Um, you know, in PubMed, for example, you usually can click on the author's name and see one, where they're located. So they might be at, you know, an academic institution or a medical institution. So you can see where that is. And then a lot of the times it gives, gives their email address as well for the corresponding author. So, you know, you can email the study author and ask if, you know, it's possible to get a copy of the article um, in question. Um, and then another thing, so, you know, other than just published, you know, articles that are in journals, um, conferences often publish abstracts. Um, so, you know, researchers, go, you know, submit to go to conferences and present research there. And um, sometimes the research at conferences hasn't actually been published in a journal yet. So you might be getting kind of the most up-to-date information. And there's usually a lot of, um, you know, there's uh, newspaper articles or press around these big uh, meetings that happen. So I know there's some national, for example, neurology meetings that happen or international ones um, as well that there's often, um, articles about the research that was published at these conferences. So it's always good to take a look at that and, and see what's going on um, at these conferences. Um, so the next slide. Um, so once you have the actual article in, you know, in your hand, um, there are certain sections that most research papers follow. You know, it's uh, an outline that most research papers follow. Um, and so, you know, it's good to just have an understanding of this before you read the article. Um, so usually most articles start with an introduction. So it talks about, you know, what what we know about a particular topic. Um, so what's the background? What's what, what do we know about something? And so uh, then usually the articles will present a gap in the literature. So they'll say, you know, we know this, but we don't know this part of this particular topic. And that's usually when these research questions are identified in the article. Um, so you want to look at what the main research question is. What is this research aiming to, to find out about? Um, and then, you know, as Sam talked about, there are many different types of studies. There's, um, you know, prospective studies, retrospective studies, observational and experimental. So 
you want to look at the type of study that was done. Was it a retrospective study? Were they looking in the past? Um, or was it, um, you know, looking forward to the future perspective? Um, because all of those different studies have, you know, pros and cons and, and ways that they affect the results. Um, and then you're also going to want to look at how were the data, how were, you know, how were they collected? Um, was it self-reported? So did people fill out a survey and say, you know, I've had, this is my diagnosis and these are the symptoms I had? Or was it through medical records? Um, did the researchers look back at the medical records and see that? Um, and you'll also want to look at when the data were collected. Were they collected, you know, 10 years ago or over a period of 10 years? Um, you might notice, you know, research sometimes does take a long time. So you might notice that um, some data were collected uh, a while ago, but that's sometimes just a, a nature of how long it takes to do the analysis of data and actually get things published. Um, and then you're also going to want to look at the number of participants or the sample size. And Sam's going to talk about this a little bit more in terms of how it relates to this concept of power. But, you know, is it just, is it a study with one person? Is it a case report? Or is it a study with you know, 10 people, a case series, or is it a really big study with 300 people? You know, with a lot of the, you know, the research on these rare neuroimmune disorders, there aren't going to be big studies, but it's important to keep the number of participants in mind when you're reading and trying to understand uh, the research that's being presented. Um, and then, you know, you, the, what, you know, what we're all looking for are the main findings. So what did the researchers find when they were looking at these data? Um, so usually the research studies will present kind of the background information. So they'll give some demographics or describe the sample. So they'll say, you know, this number, this percentage of people had this diagnosis and this percentage of people had this other diagnosis. Um, and then they might go into kind of the more analytic, uh, you know, results. So they'll say one group had greater odds of something than the other group or a greater risk. So you want to look at those main findings and see, you know, how did they answer those research questions that they presented at the beginning? Um, and then, of course, no research is perfect. Um, you know, as we've talked about, you know, different study designs influence the results. So all papers talk about the potential limitations of the research. So they'll say, you know, what the what the potential issues were with with what they found. Um, so it's important to look at that because the researchers are are you know being explicit about what some of the issues might be. Um, and it's important to keep that in mind when you're interpreting the results. And then, of course, no research um, answers all of our questions. Um, there's always there's always future research that can be done. Um, so most studies usually give suggestions for future research. So that's something to look at to say, okay, you know, we answered this, you know, in our research, but we didn't answer this. So future re researchers should should look at this and. It's good to look at that, just you know, to keep in mind of what you should be looking forward to in the, you know in the future. Um, so yeah, so I'm going to turn it over to Sam again, who's going to give you a little bit more information on statistics and um, interpreting the, that main finding section of of the research studies that you're looking at. Yeah, thanks, Gigi. And just uh, one thing to add to what Didi was saying about the limitations. Uh, that is something in every paper that. Uh, the the researchers put kind of at the end what were the limitations of the study and two two big things um, that you that you see that you as a researcher putting a study together are trying to do are to avoid bias trying to say that um, uh, we haven't consciously or unconsciously put our own bias into these results 
um, and controlling for variables. And sometimes you can control for variables and sometimes you can't. So often in the limitations, they'll explain that these are variables we couldn't control for X reason. And so that can affect the interpretation of the results. So I just wanted to throw that out there to add to what Gigi was saying. Um, and so uh, not to get too in the weeds with statistics, uh, just to give a little 101 broad overview, and I apologize to any statisticians out there who are listening uh, if I butcher this, um, but uh, uh, there are really three main things that I wanted to talk about um, and give overviews of that are important things that researchers consider when they put together the study. Um, and then also to consider when you are a uh, reader and interpreter of the research. And I mainly go through these main three things. The thing about statistics is um, they use a lot of the same words we use in our day-to-day -day life, but the definitions aren't necessarily the same. Um, and it can be rather esoteric uh, what it all means and how it relates. So I just kind of wanted to hopefully shed a little bit of light on, on some of the parts. The first is, and arguably one of the most important parts of putting any uh, research study together is the hypothesis formation. Hypothesis really meaning the question that's being asked. Um, and you wanna be very specific when you form a hypothesis. You don't wanna be very broad. And one thing that I think um, most people don't necessarily understand is that anytime you put a study together, there's there are two hypotheses, an experimental hypothesis and a null hypothesis. The experimental hypothesis is what you think of. It's the question that's being asked. Does drug X decrease relapse rate in people with NMO, for example? Uh, but with every experimental hypothesis, you have to also have the null hypothesis. Null meaning no hypothesis or none. Um, that is not the opposite of the experimental uh, hypothesis, but is if the experimental hypothesis is saying that something happens, the null hypothesis says that nothing happens. So in this example of drug X, uh, the, we think that drug X decreases um, relapse rate. Uh, the null hypothesis would be that drug X has no effect. And one thing I think that is I think um, a misconception in research and specifically when you do the statistics in research is that with any given study, any particular study, that you prove anything. You're never really trying to prove the experimental hypothesis. What you are trying to do is disprove the null hypothesis. You're trying to say that something happens, whether it be the thing that we think is going to happen, uh, it, is what happens or not. What you're trying to do is disprove the null. And what we really do as a, you know, in research is through multiple studies, continuously disprove the null hypothesis to become more confident in the fact that this particular potential cause and effect relationship, whatever question we're asking, is actually true. So, from any single study, you might see really good results that from a statistical standpoint, you're not necessarily proving that. What you've shown is that you've done a good job of disproving this null hypothesis that there is no effect. Um, so that's something that I think is important to keep in mind uh, to get a little bit more into the minds of the researchers and the statisticians. 
Secondly, like GG was hinting at before, um, with sample size and power calculations. You might hear words like, this study was powered to a certain level. And so what that really is referring to, before you even do any study uh, and start collecting data, you have to do a power calculation where based on the question that you're asking, the hypothesis, you need to know how many people or data points or whatever you're trying to test, you need to see if there's any effect. Um, and sometimes depending on the question or the any variables involved, it might be few or might be many. And so you have to look at what the um, study was powered to. Did it reach that power? Um, and shows that there's any uh, any effect based on the hypothesis. Uh, and this is where you talk about sample size, uh, like Gigi was saying, um, when you're looking at strictly descriptive information like cases or case series, uh, you don't have to think very much about power. But when you're trying to do true analytical work, uh, what's called inferential statistics as opposed to descriptive, inferential meaning that you're drawing inferences from uh, potential connections or correlations, uh, you need to do these power calculations to know how many, like I said, people or data points you need to find out if there is a connection. And then lastly, you talk, you hear about statistical significance, statistical, excuse me, statistical significance. Um, and we use the word significant, you know, in our daily life, meaning that this is something, you know, more or less that's important, um, that is substantial, that is significant in, in our daily lives. Statistical significance is a little bit different. It's not necessar necessarily the same as what I just described as maybe practical significance. Statistical significance means that this, this question, this, this potential outcome, whatever we're trying to ask, is or is not greater than chance of, of happening. This correlation uh, is more or less um, likely to happen than chance. So uh, basically, when you say that a study is statistically significant, that means based on the way it was designed and all of the data that's there, that you can say that this correlation is more um, likely to exist or to happen than chance would allow. Because you can, you can argue that you know anything can happen once. Um, that's just based on chance. But if you're looking at a group of, of data, um, whatever the case may be, whatever question you're asking, and you can show based on um, uh, all the data involved that this is more likely to happen than chance, that's what starts, you know, um, making people interested in those results. And uh, those are really the main three things that I wanted to go over uh, uh, to kind of get a little bit more into the mind of how uh, researchers form experiments and how uh, statisticians analyze different experiments. Um, and then kind of uh, piggybacking on what Gigi was saying, how are these results from whether it be one study or multiple studies translate into clinical practice? Because that's really um, what we care about. Uh, we can talk about data and results all day long, but especially from the patient and the community standpoint, you want to know how does this really affect me? Um, and so this kind of this slide kind of goes over a lot of what Gigi said that the data that's collected in the clinical studies that are analyzed and then published um, by the groups who investigated uh, these studies, whether it be the drug companies or universities, 
um, they publish it in peer-reviewed journals. The peer review process is very important, meaning that you have objective people outside of the um, the research group, even some people who are outside of the, uh, who are not necessarily experts in the disease process, but are expert statisticians or um, uh, study methodology people to look at the study and try to poke holes in it pretty much. Um, and so there's a lot of revision to go through and sometimes re-experimentation so that you can confidently say uh, that amongst peers, this is something that is legitimate and worthy of, to be added to the literature. Yeah, which is what you hear a lot. This is something that's part of the literature or we want to add this finding to the literature. Um, so these are what, what we're referring to in, in all of these published journals. And then when we talk about small studies, uh, and they need to be replicated by other groups to really ensure the outcomes are consistent. Um, you see this a lot in smaller studies uh, where um, you have a very, if it's a very, um, like 100% connection that pricks people's ears up to say, hmm, I wonder if that's actually real. So you do the study yourself in exactly with the same methodology, the same methods that the other group did to see if you get the same outcomes. Um, and you want to do that over and over and over again. This kind of goes back to what I was saying about uh, uh, the hypothesis and you consistently do the same experiment or similar experiments to, to show that there is an actual effect and understanding what is the range of that effect. Um, and then moving forward to the next slide, I want to throw this over to Tricia, um, who's going to speak a little bit more about the, the patient experience um, and what it means to, to participate in research and, and considerations there. So Tricia. Yep. Thank you, Sam. I really appreciate it. And so I, yes, this is what I do on a daily basis. And I may meet families at the most vulnerable, sensitive time of their life when they're in the emergency room or the ICU, or I may get to see them even before they've made it to the hospital in, in clinics. And so I offer opportunities. And so what we are, what my whole practice is, is I want to ensure that we are doing empirical or evidence-based research and so that that is one of the things that we are continually striving to do as opposed to what's called anecdotal and anecdotal it, it is more of my opinion and more of what is this is what i think i see this is what these are the trends that i'm seeing although important but for research, we really need to stick to evidence-based practice. And so that's when you go back to that pyramid uh, later on when you look at the slides and you look at the pyramid and you see that what we are talking about is the observational studies with the case control studies or the cohort studies. All of that is to beef up our evidence-based practice. And this is something we also do when we're teaching our nurses and our physicians. This is the evidence. This is what we strive to do. And so if you'll go to the next slide, um, is, is basically why does this matter? Why does, does this matter to me right now at this moment? And we're looking at how, how what we can do now, how will it affect change in a day, six months, a year or so down the road? And so, as you guys already know, that any any 
proportion of rare immune disorders is incredibly rare. And so the opportunity for us and for future patients to learn is incredibly vital. But as, as you are approached with opportunities, you also must be prepared to advocate for yourself and you need to know what your rights are as a research patient. You can all, we also refer to it as a research subject, but I prefer research patient. Okay, so your next slide is what is, if you'll just bear with me, I really wanna give you a short history lesson on why the ethics are so important in research. Uh, don't fall asleep, I know it won't be easy, but I, and I, and I won't drone, drone on and on. But one of the things that started well into World War II was the Nuremberg Code of 1947. And it was no way to treat humanity over World War II where we were doing uh, human experimentation on, on children, adults. They had no say in what was happening to their bodies. And it is, uh, can, so in 1947 when we started with the, the Nuremberg Code, it consisted of 10 ethical principles. And so this, this is going to start the foundation of modern, the modern way we think. However, out of the 1947 Nuremberg Code, it was refined in 1964 with the Declaration of Helsinki, developed, all of the world realized this is a problem. This is really not the way humanity thrives. And so they came up with the World Medical Association of ethical thinking. Okay, and so the again, the Nuremberg Code set was a, a set of ethical guidelines for hu human subject experimentation. However, we really, even in the United States, we didn't really learn from the Declaration of Helsinki, and that was, you know, congregations from Tokyo, from Australia, Europe, and it became the foundation of what was going to happen into the United States. And unfortunately, we did not learn from history. And one of the things that happened in the United States was, in 1972, we realized the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. And this was a 40-year study. So it started in 1932, even before, even before the Declaration of Helsinki. And it ended in 1972. We, this, when the scandal was discovered. And the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, what the purpose of the study was to observe the natural progression of untreated syphilis in rural African-American men in Alabama. It was under the disguise of receiving free health care from the United States government. Again, not the way to treat humanity. 600 people, um, excuse me, African-American men, 399 had syphilis prior to the study and were never treated and they were never told they had syphilis and worse yet they were even denied the discovery of penicillin which was in the 1940s. Again, this ended in 1972. So, what we learned is we needed to protect human subjects. And so in 1979, which really quite frankly was really not that long ago, well within my lifetime, created, in 1979, we created something called the Belmont Report, and it created the Office of Human Research Protections within the Department of Human Health Services. This Belmont Report, you can read it on the NIH website, 
It's really, it's a very user-friendly version, and I encourage you to do it because it really talks about the three ethical principles of research. The first one is called respect for persons, and this is all vulnerable populations. You must respect all vulnerable populations in addition to the healthy well-being. So vulnerable populations, children, um, prisoners, they, are, you know, they may have made a mistake. Nevertheless, they are still within our community and, and need to be well-respected. Um, fetuses, mothers, and as well uh, is in that same respect for persons. The, the second principle is called beneficence, and this is doing good for all others. Consider the welfare of your population. And the third principle is justice. Fairness, fairness for your entire population. What you offer to one person, if they qualify, offer it to the next person. It's called cherry picking when you say, oh, I think they'll be a great person. I'll just only ask this group of people. Cherry picking is not, not the correct way to go about evidence-based research. But because of the Belmont Report, this is why we have what is considered the informed consent in research and institutional review boards, which we work with on a constant basis to ensure that we are doing the best possible thing for our human research protection. Okay, so for the next slide, I want to talk about the informed consent. The informed consent for research nurses and for research coordinators, anyone who is a part of research staff is the bread and butter. It is the most important thing I can provide to an adult wanting to participate in research or a teenager child who can understand what's going on going on with them and, and of an age that they can participate and give permission. We call that assent. Okay, so the informed consent process it is a process. It is not a five-minute conversation. Okay, this is this is a way for me to tell you how this is a voluntary venture. You are you are not to feel coerced. You are not to feel like you have to do something because it's an opportunity. It's not you must do this. It's just an it is an opportunity for you to pay forward. But you have to remember that this is a voluntary venture. The other thing I when we talk about any research study, we need to talk about the risk and the benefit ratio. What are the risks? They need to clearly state what the risks are for joining the study and what are the benefits of joining the study. So benefits, there may be, there's two different types. There's ben, direct benefit to you. Drug X will do this. Our hope is, our, this drug will do this. But there's also an indirect benefit that may come from from this, and it is you may benefit the population of a, of whole. So, by for instance, by participating in this study, we may be able to glean knowledge to assist clinical care down the road for a certain population of patients. So that's one of the things I like to highlight the most is the risk risks and the benefits of this particular study. Now, as a patient, um, I, I, I need you to pay attention to what is the time investment in the study. Is it going to be a one-time survey? Or is this going to be a three-year study where I will come back to you every six months and say, hi, do you remember this is what we need to do here? 
And so that is that is a consideration that you need to take into is do I am I able to invest that much time into it? But all of that is built into the informed consent form. Also, compensation. You may or may not be comp compensated. By compensated, it, it may be monetary or it may be free parking. But again, your informed consent stipulates everything. But also, you have this considered a little bit like a one-way contract. As a research patient, you may withdraw, you may change your mind at any time and say, you know, I just, I'm unable to fulfill this, I need to withdraw myself. But please, make it a conversation with your research team, because we, we may need to know and see if there's a way for us to help you. Or the physician may say, you know what, because of criteria XYZ, I need to withdraw you from participating. But again, that's part of the the communication between you and the research team. Okay, next slide is a little bit of the types of research. So with the informed consent, I may come to anyone in the population and say, these are the different types of things we I may be teaching you about, or these are the things that we can discuss. One of them may be what's something like called biobanking. Or, Sam mentioned it earlier, where we're able to collect specimens, hold on to it, and we can use it for future use. But I will, I, it is up to me and the ownership to tell you what I do, how I protect your private information to further, to, to protect your private information so we are what's called de-identified. So it is a way for me to get the research done but protect you your privacy. And so some of the things that we are learning with biobanking, I may ask to collect blood work. I may, and then from there we can look at different antibodies for rare neuroimmune disorders. We may spin down that blood to get cells. So we can look at the white blood cells. We can look at the red blood cells so we can better under understand the immune system. We may ask for spinal fluid, and that is part of the central nervous system that to me is a little bit like liquid gold. It's not something that we take lightly. And all of these all of these are something called interventional or invasive where I need your permission to do so. But with that, you may say no and that's okay. That's just the way research goes. Okay. We may also look at genetics. We may ask for a cheek swab to do RNA or DNA, or we may ask, or we may end up using a little bit of your blood, not only to look at cells, but to look at genetics. But all of that is stipulated in the consent form. That's why the consent form is the crux of the study. So on the next slide is, that is just one type of study. We may ask simply for surveys, whether or not it's a one-time survey or the same survey at several different time points. We may look, the other types of research is we may look at the, like the Tuskegee, the natural history, disease, and disorder progression. But unlike Tuskegee, we're going to discuss every aspect of what's going on. And that way you have a full understanding of the research process and of the research study. The other types of research may be a focus group or interviews, and then we have clinical drug trials. Okay. So I also kind of want to invite Sam and Gigi into uh, the next slide, and these are, are the way, how, how do we find research studies? What's the best way that we can find them? 
and one of them is you'll find clinicaltrials.gov. And you can also, there's a really nice search bar function and you can use that, you can make it as broad as you like or you can make it very specific, but clinicaltrials.gov has been a bevy of information. And Gigi, would you mind talking about the mylitis.org website? Sure. Um, so on you know the TMA's website, we do we have a, a section for research, and one of those pages is uh, you can search for currently enrolling studies. Um, so on that page, it includes like you know all, all the all the research that we know about um, that's recruiting participants in the disorders we advocate for. Um, and in that page, you can actually filter by the disorder. So you can filter by you know, acute disseminated encephalomyelitis or neuromyelitis optica. So you can see all of the potential opportunities. Um, and then if you click on, you know, any of those, it'll tell you who's doing the study, what's required, um, you know, if you want to participate and how to how to get in contact with the, the um, researchers. Um, and, you know, we, we try to update it as much as possible, but I definitely encourage you to reach out to the researchers because they're going to have the most up-to-date information on enrollment and uh, you know how to participate. Um, so the, yeah, that's that's one way to to get uh, you know to to look and see what's currently recruiting. Um, yeah, and uh, um, I wanted to say a little bit about clinicaltrials.gov. Um, while it is a really great tool to know what's going on out there, I think. What um, needs to be understood is that, generally speaking, I say this generally, generally that uh, the studies that are required by law to be posted on clinicaltrials.gov and the subsequent results of those trials are interventional trials, so drug trials, for lack of a, a better way to describe it. Uh, sometimes you'll see more observational trials on there, like um, natural history studies, outcome measure studies, but they aren't necessarily required to be on clinicaltrials.gov. So it is a limited source if you're looking for all research that's going on out there. And unfortunately, there's not a single place where you can find everything that's going on, um, which is why we're talking about different ways to look at it. Um, so part of knowing what's going on specifically in your area is asking your healthcare providers, especially if you see uh, a physician or care team at a university or affiliated with the university, uh, they may be aware of things that are going on internally that may not necessarily be um, uh, put out there for people to know about happening, um, uh, you know, publicly available. But they can say, hold on, and maybe you'll, you'll this will be good for you in six months or something like that. Um, and even just inquiring to research institutions or hospitals uh, and looking at their websites, often um, uh, larger universities have some way to search for studies that are going on internally. Um, again, kind of maybe imperfect, but there are ways that you can look just online. Um, and I think we can, uh, Trisha and Gigi can also talk about this, just thinking broadly about what you're searching for. Uh, if you have transverse myelitis, you might not just want to search for uh, research going on with transverse myelitis. You might want to look for studies that, uh, that are associated with spinal cord injury or whatever symptoms you might be having. If you're having pain, there are some studies going on that are specifically to pain that might not be specific to TM, but, um, but you might qualify because you have an issue with pain or if you have bladder and bowel dysfunction. 
those kinds of things. Um, so I think it's uh, important to think broadly if you want to be involved in research or just want to know what kind of research is going on based on either your diagnosis or the symptoms that you have. Um, to think, uh, again, think broadly and search broadly for those things. Yep, I agree. Even at, at UT Southwestern, one of the things we have on the website is find a clinical trial or find a study. And so you will find those at different institutions. Yeah, and there there may be also ones, you know, institutions that you're maybe, you maybe aren't a patient at, but are, are near you. Um, so it's always good to, to check those out as well. Um, and then in terms of, you know, resources and contacts, um, one, we've listed all of our email addresses there. So if you have any questions, you know, feel free to send, um, you know, any of us an email. We're, we're happy to respond. Um, you know, we give you the website for clinicaltrials.gov, you know, the TMA's website, myelitis.org. Um, the Guthy Jackson Foundation also lists clinical uh, studies and trials. So you can go to their website um, and see if, you know, if there's anything there. They, they just focus on neuromyelitis optica. Um, but, you know, they, they all, they list things there as well. Um, I talked a bit about PubMed as the, you know, that free search engine. So that's the website right there. You can also Google it and it'll be the first thing that, that shows up. Um, and then, you know, Trisha spoke a bit about the, you know, the history of why we have an informed consent process, you know, the history of kind of these terrible things that have happened in research in the past and why we have these protections now for anyone participating in research. And there's actually, you know, a free, um, it's a course that you get a certificate at the end. Um, most IRBs require researchers or anyone on the research team to take one of these free courses, um, but anyone can do it. And it's actually a really great way to learn the history of research and, and why these things exist. Um, and it's something you can, you can start and then go back to um, but it's a, it's a really good resource if that's something you're interested in. So that's that humansubjects.nih.gov um, link there. Uh, so if, if anyone's interested, that's there as well. Um, so yeah, uh, we are towards the end of our time. Um, I just you know want to thank both Sam and Trisha for joining us today. I think this is um, a really you know great topic and something that comes up a lot um, in our community and you know research is so important so I want to thank you both so much well thank absolutely you. my pleasure yes yes thanks Gigi and the TMA for for inviting us to do this and and uh, I think that it is an important topic um, especially for this community and, and any kind of rare disease community that are going to be approached uh, with research participation so I think it's important and thanks Trisha for for working with me working together <laughs> oh thank you sam i do enjoy it and i am so so incredibly happy to be a, a part of the tma and to be a part of this community yes thank you and just for everyone listening um you know this podcast was recorded um we will make it available on the tma's website and via itunes um it'll be in the resource library we will also include a copy of the the powerpoint so if you were calling in on the phone rather than via the computer um, you know, you'll have access to that PowerPoint and it'll also be on the, the video that we have of the, the actual podcast. So you can follow along, um, reference it as needed. Um, so yeah, so thank you. Thanks to everyone listening. Yep. Thanks all. Thank you.